0: AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2024 where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit pyapc.com. Thanks
1: for joining us for the eighth installment of the AHLA podcast series on top 10 issues for 2024. Um, We're going to discuss some proposed Medicaid regulations. Joining us today is the author of that section of the article, Caroline Brown. Caroline, thank you for being here. Can you introduce yourself, please, to our audience?
2: Uh, thanks for having me, Marty. Um, I'm a partner at Brown & Pice, which is a small law firm in Washington focused on federally funded uh, programs that are administered by the states. So Medicaid is obviously the largest of those.
1: Caroline, most healthcare attorneys, I think, are familiar with Medicare regulations and how that process works. But I think most of us would admit that Medicaid is more of a mystery. And part of that certainly is the fact that there's 56 Medicaid programs, all 50 states, the territories, District of Columbia. Um, So i want to take this opportunity and your expertise. Can you just give us an introduction to how this regulatory process works between the Center for Medicaid and the state programs?
2: That's a great question, Marty, and it's hard to emphasize how different Medicare and Medicaid are, at least in how they how different they were at their inception, um, because Medicaid ultimately is a state-run program that the federal government has agreed to fund in part, and, um, and the conditions of that funding are that they adhere to certain uh, rules and federal rules and regulation. Over time, those rules and regulations have gotten far more complex than they started out as. And so, um, and in many cases, um, their states are the states are themselves being regulated by the federal government, and they are being asked to regulate providers or their contractors in certain ways. So it's a much more complex process where there's not direct regulation of um, providers, but rather where the states are being instructed to do certain things in a certain way if they want to qualify for federal funding. And over time, uh, I think the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has been frustrated by the fact that there are 56 different Medicaid programs and has been trying to uh, not necessarily to make them more uniform, but to make them easier to compare um, by having uh, states do things in certain ways that allows for um, uh, comparison across state lines.
1: Well, on the Medicare side of the show, we at least have some hope that CMS appreciates that in its its administration of its regulations, there may be challenges. and that may be somewhat a a temper on what they do. Is that true
2: on the Medicaid side? Um, It's hard to tell. And I think that there is often a lot of frustration at the state level that some of the things that they're being asked to do are extraordinarily complex from an operational standpoint. And um, and there's not a single way to do it. There are many different ways to do it, and uh, and uh, uh, it's it's often very hard to sort of achieve compliance with what the um, federal government is asking uh, the states to do, and what the states in turn then try to push down to their providers. So, in the
1: Medicaid space. Um, when we talk about the providers and then the payers in the case of, of managed care entities is it direct regulation from the centers from medicaid or is it the centers from medicaid requiring the states to do things and the states in turn require yes. their providers oh my goodness so okay.
2: one so yeah so one of the things that we see a lo- in the in the one of the rules that's um, pending and that i expect is going to be finalized is a lot more requirements about what the states have to put in their contracts with managed care plans and then what the states have to do um uh what the states have to do with whatever that information is that they're collecting um, from uh from managed care plans so one example would be in the in the new quality structure that cms is proposing the quality rating um uh The CMS will be requiring the states to gather a lot of information from the plans on a whole variety of uh, quality metrics, and that information will be provided to CMS. But hand-in-hand with that is a requirement that each state develop a website where all this information can be provided and easily accessible to the Medicaid population and that that different data can be looked at according to um, different demographics and um, and different uh, criteria. And so there's the requirement that the states have to push down to the managed care plans in terms of providing and collecting data. But there's also the separate requirement on states that says, you're the one who's now responsible for for creating a website that people can use uh, all that quality data to choose the plan uh, or to or to evaluate uh, the plan that they're already in, so it's sort of it's a it's it's kind of a double uh, a, a double obligation, uh, uh, some on the states themselves and some that then get pushed through to the providers.
1: So on this quality rating system, um, and you know the, again the familiar world. Of Medicare is the star rating system for the Medicare Advantage plans. I mean, is it fair to draw comparisons between those two programs and what the Centers for Medicaid are now trying to do with the MCES?
2: So I think it's similar, but it's not going to be the same. Um, it's a there. It's a different population, um, so different um, uh, metrics are going to be um, uh, collected. But also, it's a in many ways, it's a more diverse population because Medicaid has uh, uh, you know the the um, children and families, which uh, is not a Medicare population. It's the primary insurer for people with disabilities. It's the primary coverage for long-term care in addition to being sort of a more general health care coverage program. And so I think part of the um, intent with the quality system is to collect information that can be relevant to all of those different um, populations, um, including those who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid.
1: And in that proposed rule, um, certainly I understand the intent is to furnish beneficiaries with information to select a plan, but are there requirements then back on the states in terms of how they evaluate plan performance on those metrics as
2: well? Um, I think they will be expected to use that information, but right now the primary focus is on collecting and sharing that, making it transparent. So not like the star
1: rating systems that adjust payments that are made to the plans. This is going to be more, it's focused on the transparency to the. Yes. Yes. Yes.
2: Because this, because, there, there's no it's it's there's no direct tie to payment rates. That's usually right. a state decision within the confines of, you know, what's actuarially um, appropriate to be paying.
1: I'm not trying to suggest anything if the centers for Medicaid are listening. So, but <laughs> um, I was really intrigued by the, the the description of this new payment adequacy and access provisions. The the proposed rule around that um, where it's it's reporting, certain specified reporting, again, states have to collect certain data from the managed care entities. This in terms of how much they're spending on certain types of services and then comparing rates to Medicare. What are the regulators trying to accomplish here?
2: So I think this is really a first um, in uh, where the... Uh, there's a the general statutory rule in Medicaid is that Medicaid has to pay rules that are efficient and economic and sufficient to attract enough providers to serve uh, the population uh, uh, comparable to what is available to the population in that geographic area. So a very high level sort of um, uh, requirement for where where states are s- supposed to um, be. Comparing and comparing it to Medicare um, is always sort of a, 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 met, a metric that's looked at, but it's not really one that evaluates the sufficiency of the rates. And um, and so uh, I think this reflects a belief by CMS that the Medicare rates are. Um, more or less appropriate and that they want to know where state rates are in comparison um to those to the medicare rates and it is um i think it could be difficult for states to collect and report that information in a way that um is consistent with the historic view that um states themselves they can um uh are, should not publicize what rates are being negotiated between managed care plans and their um, and their providers but for certain services they're being asked to collect them and uh, report in the aggregate how those rates compare to medicare and then for certain long term services the states are being asked to collect information and, and report how those rates Compare to what Medicaid would pay on the fee for service side. Um, and um, uh, I'm not sure whether that's because there's a belief that the managed care rates are lower than what would be paid Medicaid fee for service, or whether there's a belief that the managed care rates are higher than what Medicaid would pay um, uh, fee for service. But um uh but what was striking in the um in the preamble describing these proposals was CMS's view that this would enable easier comparison across states. Um, which is uh, uh, that's sort of that's unusual because really each Medicaid program should stand on its own. each Medicaid program has its own um, uh, priorities and its own uh, uh, population and uh, and the comparison across states, um uh in some ways could it it can be very problematic
1: yeah we've learned through hospital price transparency regulations that a rate is not always a rate i think that's especially true (laughs) in medicaid especially true in medicaid yeah yeah because you start Mm -hmm. talking about directed payments and supplemental payments and dish does the proposed rule accommodate that and, and provide direction to the states on how to calculate that
2: um uh, at a high level, it does. Um, but I think that there's gonna be uh, there's gonna have to be subregulatory, assuming that this is finalized more or less in the form that it is, there's gonna have to be sort of sub-regulatory guidance as to what counts and and what doesn't for these um, uh, uh, in 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 these types of comparisons.
1: Uh, you mean the devil's in the details?
2: The devil is in the details.
1: <laughs> well, being of details, let's talk about the proposed rule on medical loss ratio. Now, my very basic understanding of MLR is it's a comparison between how much a plan pays in providing services plus quality initiatives, how that is a percentage of the total amount they receive from the state um, as payments. And that that M L R has a target of whatever it is, eighty five percent, eighty nine percent, and the like. And this proposed rule is talking about what goes into the calculation of the denominator, uh, how much they numerator spend.
2: and denominator. denominator. Yeah,
1: yeah. What are they trying to do here? What, what's the end game?
2: <laughs> so again, I think this is it's a, a, a kind of a well in Medicaid the M L R is not a it's it's not states are not required to take a rebate. If if um, uh, plans are below the anticipated MLR, but they do use it, they do have to use it in setting their capitation rates. I think this is a tightening of the MLR, um, where in both the numerator and the denominator, in the numerator, um, there's a uh, in terms of what is paid out to providers uh, managed care plans can only count incentive payments if they meet certain criteria that are decided upon in advance. And so if a plan finds itself with sort of below its MLR and with extra funds, it can't be distributing those to providers in a sort of non, um, uh, at a, in a last minute way, <laughs> um, to bring its MLR up. Um, on the denominator side, um, it is uh, requiring plans to include uh, state-directed payments and other types of payments that are being made by states to plans that um, that uh, may not be considered part of sort of the base capitation payment. And so, um, I I think it, it it's being it's a stricter definition of the MLR and um, Uh, uh, but it does continue to give states the flexibility of deciding whether or not to uh, require a rebate, and if they do require a rebate, where to set that percentage standard.
1: Um, Another proposed rule on network adequacy requirements for NSCs, I'm going to grossly simplify this and say it's driven primarily by maximum wait times. So, the MCE has to develop an adequate network so that beneficiary wait times for services are not delayed. And, you know, on the provider side of the world, we love network adequacy standards because that's what gives us negotiating authority against the plans is you have to have us, right? To meet right. the network adequacy <laughs> requirements, right. you need us and I'm going to leverage that as best I can to get a higher rate or other favorable contract terms. But this always comes down to a question of enforcement, Um, is what is the remedy if a plan fails to meet network adequacy requirements? And is that merely a matter of contract between the state and the plan? Or is there something built into this overall regulatory scheme that provides some protections to beneficiaries and in doing so to providers?
2: So there's always been network adequacy requirements. So the state's always had to set network adequacy requirements and they can use various things to just dis- to uh, evaluate how adequate the network is. What the new proposal is, it says you have to have w- wait times. Um, uh, you can't you as as one measure of network adequacy. And then it sets specific wait times, uh, 10 days for behavioral health providers and 15 days for primary care and um, OBGYN providers for routine visits. Um, and then this, I, I think it, the proposal is that a state has to choose a fourth category and set its own um, wait times. And then it says states have to have secret shopper surveys where um, uh, where states... Uh, Send out secret shoppers to see can they get appointments within those um, wait times, and is the provider who's listed in the provider directory one who's available for um, Medicaid patients, and and is all the other information in the directory um, correct? And then if there if there um, uh, if there is a failure, there is a requirement. Again, it's a requirement on the state um, to uh. uh Enter into some sort of corrective action plan with its with the managed care plan to try to um, remedy that um, uh, solution. And I think uh, you know those those wait times are pretty aggressive. They're um, uh, they are I, I think more aggressive than the wait times in Medicare and um, and more aggressive than what most people would have in their commercial plans, but you are yeah. dealing with a more you are dealing with a more vulnerable population.
1: Speaking of aggressive and less aggressive timelines, mm-hmm. let's wrap up with a conversation about the what you you in uh, the articles referred to as a proposed rule. We know, that in fact, it was finalized by CMS about a couple of mid January, um, which is the prior authorization rule, which and check me on this, it applies to Medicaid MCOs as well as Medicare Advantage plans and um, exchange plans, right? So yes. that group, not commercial payers, darn it, but that group is subject to this rule. And sort of the big headline grabber when that was published was um, the pri- the time period by which a payer has to respond to a request, 72 hours for an urgent um request and then seven business seven excuse me seven calendar days yeah
2: seven calendar or the days. other
1: yeah, yeah. And, and help me under first of all before we get to i understand with emergency services there are no pa requirements but what how do they define urgent in this rule? Or is it? I know. I don't think it? they
2: defined urgent, but <laughs> I haven't made my way through all 844 pages yeah. of the final rule. <laughs> okay, but I, I mean, it, it is. So I was waiting. It, it's not yet in the Federal Register. It's only okay. available in the there large, <laughs> in
1: big the print, very large you
2: document. Yes, can't possibly print it because
1: there's two rims of paper, right? Right. Yeah. Um. But but it, it is urgent. Emergent services. There shouldn't be a PA requirement, correct? So this yes, is somewhere. Yeah, between... for. I don't
2: think. No, I don't think it's yeah. for emergency services. That may be one is.
1: of those. You uh, know, I, yeah. We know it when we see
2: it, right? Uh,
1: uh, yeah. But... I, I
2: mean, I assume. In, I assume it's as, uh, in some way, as determined by the physician who's, uh, or, right. or other provider who's seeking that authorization.
1: But and so it... my question on these wait times is, for example, the American Medical Association has published. Um, proposed model legislation for the states um, on PA, which would impact commercial payers as well. But they have much, they are advocating for much more aggressive timelines than 72 hours and seven days. As, As you understand it, would a state have the authority to to impose a more stringent requirement? Oh, sure. This it's...
2: this is a yeah, this is a this is a, a minimum standard. I think some states already do have more um, um stringent uh requirements. So this would be this would be the minimum and it would be standardized across all different um types of um plans. And the one of the um sort of corollary aspects of the rule and the, the one that didn't get all that headlines, but um, uh, is is to make all that prior authorization process much more transparent about what is required in order to um, be authorized, and what may or may not be missing from the uh, request and, um, and what the decision was, and why the decision was made that way. Um, and that's all information that um, plans and, um, uh, uh, Medicaid, Medicaid agencies are going to have to be, um, uh, make available, um, uh, both to providers and to beneficiaries. Well,
1: all of this goes into effect by January 1 of 2026. So I know what we're going to talk about next year, Caroline. <laughs> so I am enormously much more smart than I was before we started this conversation. So thank you for taking the time. I'm glad we have folks like you monitoring these developments and keeping us on the straight and narrow.
2: Thanks so much, Marty. Pleasure to be
0: here. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.